0: Our scripture text this evening is Ephesians two verse twelve. I will be reading Ephesians two twelve and thirteen, but our focus is Ephesians two twelve. It can be found on page one thousand two hundred and forty two of your pew Bibles. We will also be reading Lord's Day twenty two, found on page two hundred and twenty three in your forms and prayers book. Before we read, let's ask God's blessing. Father in heaven, we come before you yet again on this day to hear your word, and we pray that this evening what we would see is what we've been saved from and where we are heading, and then the hope that we as your people have in the face of death, in the face of trial, our resurrection, eternal life hope. Let us see that this evening, give it, let it come within us and give to us strength. We pray this in your name. Amen. Now, Ephesians 2.12 gives to us what is the opposite, the other side of the coin of our heritage. And that's why we read it this evening. It gives to us the other side of the covenant of God and those outside of it. Ephesians 2.12, Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off, have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Thus far our reading from Ephesians 2, twelve, and now we read a summary of what God's Word teaches us about the resurrection of the body and life everlasting in Lord's Day 22. How does the resurrection of the body comfort you? Not only will my soul be taken immediately after this life to Christ its head, but also my very flesh, raised by the power of Christ, will be reunited with my soul and made like Christ's glorious body. How does the article concerning life everlasting comfort you? Even as I already now experience in my heart the beginning of eternal joy, So after this life, I will have perfect blessedness, such as no eye has seen, no ear has heard, no heart has ever imagined, a blessedness in which to praise God eternally. Our comfort... Our comfort, it appears so often in the Heidelberg Catechism, you could almost say that for every Lord's Day. What is your comfort here? How does this comfort us? What is the believer's only comfort? We have comfort. We have comfort in the face of death. We have a belief that gets us through the difficult times. In fact, we are able to make sense of death itself. The world doesn't have this. The world is, is absent this comfort, a comfort that we know and a comfort that only Christians could possibly know. I was reminded of this. Back in January, there was a, a news story that broke of football player Damar Hamlin who suffered cardiac arrest after making a tackle in a primetime Monday night game The teams and the crowd, the TV looked on in horror as he collapsed after this after this tackle and had to have CPR administered to him. An ambulance come on the field and cart him away. It took a long time and the teams were very shaken by this. In fact, though this game was very important to the NFL season, both teams and coaches decided that they would cancel, that they would stop the game and they wouldn't play it. Why do I bring that up? Well, in, in the face of the whispers of death, what they saw was that the game didn't matter. What they saw then was that they needed comfort, and this is what I found interesting about that situation and what we will find interesting about any type of situation in the world where death rears its ugly head or where there's a great tragedy and trial. What was interesting is the way everyone responded Players and newscasters, fans, news anchors who would not take the name of God on their lips for any other reason were very quick to say our our hearts and prayers are with DeMar Hamlin and his family, that we pray for them, that that everyone pray for his family. In fact, they were unashamed to say that, well, we we pray that, that God heals him, that kind of thing. This is not the only situation, certainly, if you are old enough to remember. I say it old enough, not like it was that long ago, but a great classic example for us was 9-11. Some of us are saying old enough, that was like yesterday, but, but there are those here who are not old enough to remember that. But if you remember that day, you would see that there was the response in God we trust, there was responsive prayers. churches were packed afterwards. And what we see is that in the face of the whispers of death, in the face of this tragedy, the world needs to borrow from us. They need to try to borrow from our comfort. And so they start adopting language and beliefs and even put in the, into their belief system just a little sliver. That perhaps there is someone who can heal. And, and in, within anyone is a desire to help, is a desire to do something. And in such cases where nothing, humanly speaking, can be done, there is an aid in man to seek out a higher power. And so they do, but they, do, they don't do it properly. They do it sparingly. And it's mostly lip service. See, why talk about that? Because this is the difference. This is what makes the difference. We have a comfort we have an eternal standing. We have a future. We have glory awaiting. We have heaven awaiting. And so the whispers of death ought not to confound and confront us in the same way it does the world. This is why we read from Ephesians 2.12, which I'm going to read again. It's a description of those who are without Christ. In Ephesians, Paul is talking to those who were once Gentiles and he characterizes their existence before coming to God. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. Having no hope. There is no hope outside God. And so what does the world do? It routinely tries to borrow hope from perhaps the supernatural, from perhaps Christianity, from perhaps a flimsy idea of the afterlife, just to give them some kind of hope. This is extremely important to us. And we won't truly understand just what that hope is and the glory of it without understanding what the Bible tells us about life and death. How do we understand life and death? That's our first point. Scripture's teaching on life and death. But before actually getting to the Scripture's teaching, we want to look at the world's understanding of it. What happens at the end? What happens in death? We've already discussed what happens to the believer in light of Christ's resurrection. That was Lord's Day 17. But in this Lord's Day, it specifically brings it to our own resurrection, our own glorification. But what about for all? What about death itself? What do we believe about that? Not long ago, there was the belief of materialism that held Pretty much the most important sway in our culture, most people would be materialists and believe that this was it, nature was all. They would boldly declare that death was the end of everything and they would put on false facades of strength, that it just ends there and why do you need more? There is nothing more. It's it's foolish and naive to believe anything else. Now, I think this is still very strong in our day and age. Many people believe this and to a degree, but I think they've also walked away a bit from this strict materialism and, and adopt a and sense of spirituality. You know, how often don't you hear, when confronted with these trials, the, them say that my, my grandfather passed away, but I, I like to think he's looking down on this right now. I would like to think he sees what's going on. I'd like to think there's a better place after death. And so what ends up happening, I think, in our culture, you have a mix of sort of a spiritualism and a materialism, and mostly materialism holds sway. Mostly it's at this world and your body is it. And how does that then affect your life? How does that affect one's comfort? Well, the tangible world is as good as it gets. There's no way to speak about origin of all things. There's no way to speak about the end. We are left in this eternal maze of materialism, and this this world is all that there is, and it won't matter what the beginning was, and it won't matter what the end is, because you won't be there to see it anyways. You will cease to exist. And so enjoy life now. Let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. That seems to be about as good as some get. Hopefully you can eke out a somewhat tolerable life on this earth and aren't, aren't cursed with some trial, because that would just destroy your life itself. Materialism, combined then with the spiritualism as well, then lives its life in this way, but at certain junctures and points tries to say, maybe there is something else. But there's not a whole lot of thought put in that. In fact, it's astonishing most people would put more thought into their ski vacation or their spring break then eternal life, and how to get there, and if there is an eternal life to even worry about. What the world has sought to do, and what it does in its own heart, is become experts at being content not to answer that question fully, to answer it just enough to give themselves perhaps a bit of hope or even a finality, and they don't think about it, they don't worry about it until it rears its ugly head. For most, there is no judgment. Death is not a penalty for sin. It's a transition to a higher, better life. There is no judgment. The best they can say is there's a vague, bearing consequence of what you've done on earth. I want you to follow this quote. I think this theologian says it very well very beautifully, of what the world has accomplished in trying to cut off all judgment, and trying to cut off what Scripture and God has revealed about what will happen. The theologian says, "...when they are asked whether such a thing as eternal life is possible, a life of undisturbed blessedness and glory, they are suddenly condemned to silence." They have so long been conducting the argument against the Christian doctrines of death and the grave, of judgment and punishment, and have so long delighted in the disappearance of these doctrines that they forgot to ask the question whether, with the extinction of these, the hope of eternal life and of an everlasting blessedness did not also fall away. The moment that question is asked, it becomes clear that in the heat of the battle, the hope of eternal life somehow got lost. The same knife that was used to cut away all fear out of the heart of man cut away all hope as well. That same knife used to cut away all fear, to cut away judgment, to cut away a God who would have justice and that this life matters and that there must be faith, cut that out and what is left, no hope. As Ephesians two twelve, without hope, without God, hopeless in this world. So that's worlds. That's our culture. That's our our life's experience of what life and death is, and the best of what the world has to offer. But what does Scripture say? What's Scripture's teaching? Well, contrary to the hopelessness of Ephesians two twelve, those who belong to God have hope. They're no longer strangers to the covenant of promise. They're no longer without God. They have hope. They have comfort. What is life as far as Scripture is concerned? It's fellowship with God. You see, we need to get this through our minds. In Scripture's terms, life and death are not a beating heart and a conscious mind and an annihilation of that. Scripture never teaches, never claims to teach that death is the ceasing, the end of existence. In fact, there is no higher created being that God has ever created that will cease to exist. No human, no angel, no demon will cease to exist. You see, we sort of think from our perspective of a physical world, death is the end. Death is the ceasing of existence that couldn't be further from the truth. In Scripture's terminology, death is not absent life. Death is not, in that sense, absent breath. You continue on, but death is separation from God. That is what death is. And we know that, and yet we sort of also sort of think in this annihilationist type way as if death is the end. That's the end of the person, that that even the soul might cease to exist there. It doesn't. So we can confuse life and death at times, you see. If that's what death is, if death is, is being separated from God to know nothing but curse, life then is the opposite. You see, what's not being discussed is whether that soul will be in existence Even the the souls of the unrighteous will be raised. They will be joined to a body, and they will know nothing but suffering. There won't be a glorified existence, but they will be in what is properly called a living death. Experiencing the truth of death itself, knowing only the sorrow, the justice, and wrath of God, only knowing the separation from Him, and enduring on and on and on. Whereas life is knowing the blessing of God. Fellowship with God is the first and most important benefit of the covenant. Hell is also not where God is absent. We speak of it in that way and in certain respects. What we would should properly mean, though, is that hell is not the place where God isn't present totally, but that he's not present in grace. God is present in hell, but it's... It's the existence of justice, of a face turned against those in wrath, outpouring of that wrath on those people. That's death. Death is to not be known by God in fellowship with him, and that's far scarier than just ceasing to exist. It's far worse in one sense. Not even in one sense. It's far worse to know nothing but the wrath of God but what is life? What is life? When we leave on Sundays, we hear a blessing. Often, it's what's called the Aaronic blessing coming from number 6. A blessing that God told Moses and Aaron to put upon his people when they gathered. We know the words well, the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. I would put before you, brothers and sisters, that that is life. That every Sunday we hear some sort of blessing, if not that itself, in which we experience life itself. The blessing of the Lord. A countenance that's uplifted. If you haven't noticed that in in that blessing before, think of it. it's, it's, It's a face that becomes happy and smiling. It's when God sees us, what happens is His countenance and His face becomes one of pure joy and happiness and smiles. And that we don't know the, the clenched jaw of the Lord, we only know the smiling of His face. Blessing. The Lord make His face to shine upon you a shining face. The Lord give you peace. This is life. I'm going to go back to what I said. You see, what's what's under what's what we're talking about here is not existence, but the quality of that existence. Life is fellowship with God. Death is punishment. Scripture is clear that the life of covenant relationship with God is the unrestricted fellowship with all the goodness of God. And, and listen to this way another described this. This is beautiful. Life is living with God in a land where the first day was the best we ever have known, and every day is better than the one before. That day is the best we've ever known, and the next is better than the one before it, knowing nothing but blessing from God. What a description of what life is. In the truest form, life is that fellowship with God, whereas death is the displeasure of God. God. And death is to know that clenched jaw of God. If the blessing we receive is life, then the opposite of that blessing is that death. It's not the Lord bless you and keep you. It's the Lord curse you and punish you. It's not the Lord Lord's face shine upon you and be gracious to you. It would that His countenance would not shine, and you would know only the anger and wrath of God. You would not be preserved and kept. You would not know grace and mercy, but in fact, you would only know true justice. It's not a lifted countenance. It's a displeasing look of the Lord, and that is death as well. So this is what Scripture teaches us about life and death. And then we turn to the Catechism and what it teaches us in the comfort of hope. And that's our second point, the the comfort of the resurrection. How then does this resurrection comfort us? says, Not only will my soul be taken immediately after this life to Christ its head, but also my very flesh, raised by the power of Christ, will be reunited with my soul and made like Christ's glorious body. There's a lot in this answer, a lot to unpack. First, we see destination and timing. Destination and timing. Our destination at death, at the, at the death of our physical bodies, is immediately being brought to the presence of Christ, is immediately going to his side. Notice then, it's immediately going to life, right? That's why we went through what Scripture teaches. If, if, if the best and greatest forms of life is fellowship with God, then our destination upon death, as Jesus said, today you'll be with me in paradise, is to go to him, it's to go to life. Death isn't the end. Death doesn't stop us. It brings us to greater life in Christ. That's the destination, and the timing is instantaneous. This simultaneously condemns the doctrines of soul sleep, which says that we just sort of exist in the grave, we are sort of out of it, until the Lord comes again. It denies that. It denies the doctrine of annihilationism that says everything just ceases there. No, there is a destination for his people, and it happens immediately. It's to Christ's own side. Second, we see material. Material. What is the material? Contrary to what most ancient philosophies believe, they would say material was bad. The body was bad. You wanted to be free of the body. They would blame many of the sins of people on being entrapped in a body. The highest form of deliverance, and this is also true of many Eastern religions, is to escape the body to sort of be united to something greater, to some sort of spiritual essence, to be freed from this tangible body. That is not at all what Scripture says. We were created to be souls and bodies, to, to be an enfleshed soul. And our soul and our bodies make us who we are. They're part of our nature and they're not bad. But rather that our bodies, the material of our bodies, would be transformed and changed with the resurrection And we would receive even Christ, like Christ, glorified, glorious body. That's our destiny. Your body is special. Your body is a blessing. God created us to be tangible image bearers. That's our glory, that we physically represent to all creation, God himself. Our body is vital to that, and it's not something to to be ignored. It's not something to be pushed aside. It's something to be embraced. And as our bodies on this earth decay, as they have pains, as we see them fall away, what is the hope isn't that we would escape it fully, rather that we would see it transformed into the best that it could possibly be. The blessing of the resurrection is not to be freed from the body, but to be joined again to a perfect, glorified body. Third, Christ is the comfort Christ is the comfort. What's the comfort of a Christian in the resurrection of the body? Is it that we receive a new one? What's our comfort? Is is it that we will see our lost loved ones again? Is it that we will be away from all pain and sorrow? Is it that we would know only joy? Is it that the world will be remade and the curse will be no more? Is it those things? Partially, partially, but only in so far as they come to us through Christ himself. Christ is the comfort. Christ is the comfort of eternal life. We are taken to Christ. We are raised by the power of Christ. We are made like Christ. Our comfort in death is Christ. He is our singular comfort. Now perhaps, sometimes you think to yourself, that doesn't really comfort me much. Why? Why? Why is it that when I think, I'll, I think of, of heaven, I think of the new world, and I'm almost more excited about a glorified body, I'm almost more excited about seeing loved ones than I am at the thought that I will be with him? Why does that happen? Well, in one sense, a practical explanation is that those loved ones we had here on earth, we had in a very tangible way, and we miss them. And that's not to be downplayed. Christ brings us to the saints, brings us to our lost loved ones who believe, and that's a great blessing. But in answer to that fear, well, well why don't, why doesn't that thought of the comfort of Christ bring me such, such comfort, such glory, such thanksgiving and praise? Know that it will for true believers. If I could illustrate it this way, it's like a child, a young child who's old enough, to sort of understand going to see mom, but not fully get, get it. You might have known this from your own kids. You might have experienced this if you don't have kids and seeing children of others. I'm going through this currently, so it's a, a rather fitting illustration for me. If Allison is away from Lauren for a long period of time, and we're going home, and I can tell her we're going to go see mommy, we're going to go see mommy, and she, she can get excited. Mama, mama, she'll say. She's excited. She, she somewhat gets it. There's a little bit of, of, of recognition there. And dare I say it, to make it fit this illustration, that there's a, perhaps a little bit of comfort there, but not all the comfort that comes to her when she actually sees Lauren. Then, I mean, you've all seen her run around church. Then it's, it's Mama! And she goes flying to go see her. And it's all joy. And it's all comfort. I like to think that's what it's like with us. When we enter glory, as great a blessing as it will be to see loved ones, to experience resurrection life and glorified bodies, we will be like the little child away from their mom who finally sees her again, and then it clicks. Then we properly see, Yet yeah, Christ is, is our only comfort. He's all that we need. So let's strive for that now, but let us also know that that is coming to true saints, that comfort of Christ singularly in him alone. It's that blessing and that experience we have. Jesus told us to come come to me all who are weary and heavy laden because he would give us rest. And he has done it in part already. You can imagine what it would be to truly go to him and to truly experience this rest. And finally, we see the comfort of everlasting life. This is our third point and the the second question and answer of the catechism. We've begun to discuss already what eternal life and eternal death mean, but here we expand on it. We've already begun to breathe in eternal life. That's what the Catechism says and Scripture shows to us. We already are the inheritors of eternal life. But this exists in our souls and hearts, not yet in our bodies, not yet in this tangible world. Romans 14.17 says that joy that we begin to experience now is of the kingdom of God in righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. So we do partake of that eternal life through the Spirit. Now we already have it. But it's not what it is in glory. There's a a difference in, in grade of glory from what we experience now to what we experience in the glorification of heaven. And it's as radical, it's as transformative as the difference is between a seed and a plant. It's the same entity. You plant a seed into the ground, and that seed develops and grows into a plant. It's one thing. It's one life form. It didn't transform or change. It grew and developed. But the glory of the grown plant that blossoms and flowers and produce fruit is of a far greater glory than the husk of that seed that was planted. And so we, we know the, the, the beginning stages of that glory in our souls and hearts and life, but our bodies. And and our our very desires will experience such a transformation that will be as great and as different as a seed to a mature plant. The blossoming of that glory. That's why we treat with respect the bodies of the saints. Your body right now. We treat them with honor. We commit their bodies to the grave. But we fully expect that grave to be opened again and that very body to be raised out into that glorified body. You see, when a Christian seals a grave, it isn't the end. We lay them there for a time. And the world seals a grave, that's it to them. We seal a grave in hope. And that's why questions like, should you cremate? How should we treat the body? How do we answer those type of things? Well, the Bible may not wholesale condemn that, but it isn't in keeping with the Bible's explanation of the the glory of a human body, one that is to be raised up, one that should be honored. Scripture expects us to commit bodies to the ground and so see them again. It's not as if we discard and annihilate or or burn it away. We, We put it there expecting it to be raised again. The Westminster Larger Catechism, question and answer 86, says something quite amazing about this. It says, The communion and glory with Christ, which the members of the invisible church enjoy immediately after death, is in that their souls are then made perfect in holiness and received into the highest heavens, where they behold the face of God in light and glory, waiting for the full redemption of their bodies. And listen to what it says. Which even in death continue united to Christ and rest in their graves as in their beds till at the last day they be again united to their souls. Westminster Confession is saying our bodies are even still united to Christ even when we've left them. That that will be raised and remade. That's the joy of this transformation, the joy of eternal life. This life and glory is described in 1 Corinthians 2, nine. What no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined, what God has prepared for those who love him. Think of the best times in your life. Freed of anxiety, of thoughts, of stress, where you felt great. Those best times in your life, they will pale in comparison. They wouldn't even register on the scale of the best days ever of one day in glory. Glory can be scary to us. Heaven can be scary to us because it's the unknown. It's a mystery. We think of it and we think what will be like, and we don't have answers to all that. We think of, of the eternity of it and scares us too. It can. We'll know that the Lord your God gave you, even on this earth, times when you experience those days of great bliss. And he knew you well enough to give you exactly that sort of blessing, to know exactly what you would like, and he has gone to prepare a place where we would know nothing but that. And so even when glory might give you a little bit of fear, and heaven might make you question and doubt, you can know that, that our answer to that is trusting in God. He knows exactly what is the blessing that makes it the best for his people. And we trust that. We trust that he knows. John 17, verse 3, Jesus says that eternal life is that we know the only true God and Jesus Christ whom he has sent. I often reference in prayers where Moses desired to see the face of God when he was hidden in the cleft of the rock. The reason I reference that is because Moses at that time got it. He said, Lord, show me your glory. Show me your glory. And to him, that was life itself. Seeing God was knowing him and thus living and living truly. And at that time, the Lord hid him and said, you cannot see me and live. You can only see the the backward glance at the back of God himself. And yet Moses' face was still one of glory and shining when he came down the mountain. Since John 17.3 is true, that eternal life is that we know the only true God and Jesus Christ whom whom he has sent. Can you imagine the glory of that life when it is undimmed? God's word speaks of it as if there is no sun, there's no need for the sun because the glory of the Lord shines all. That we see it in that way. When we experience the closeness of God on this earth, they are the best of experiences. You do see when you, when you catch those glimpses of who God is in his word of what he's done for you, nothing rivals it. Nothing rivals knowing the Lord and seeing his glory. That's why Moses asked to see it. That's why we ask to see it. And in glory it will be answered. And that's eternal life. Everything else will pale in comparison to that great truth. To see the glory of your Savior, to see the glory of God. Brothers and sisters, this is our comfort in eternal life and death. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, what can we say in response? We are heirs and have been given blessings far beyond us. We have been given comforts we don't deserve, and yet, Lord, comforts we crave. Bless us here today that we would live in the comfort of the glory that awaits your people, that we would live trusting in you, and that we would live already seeking eternal life now, which is to seek you, to know you. We ask this for each of us, in Jesus' name, amen.